0: Before we get started today, I want to note this conversation took place on Sunday, and this story is moving fast. Okay, on with the show. At one point during our conversation on Sunday, attorney Ankush Kadari paused to watch the news.
1: I'm just watching CNN in the background here, and apparently they have asked Cohen's lawyer about about the federal campaign and its finance plea. I just want to listen to this real quick. Give me a second.
0: On Thursday night, Americans heard that for the first time ever, a president had been indicted on criminal charges. But the indictment is under seal. And that means right now, we're in a weird kind of history-making limbo.
1: It has created this information vacuum where between Thursday evening and Tuesday afternoon, the country is operating kind of partially in the dark, right? Uh, and Frankly, I'm really not, not in love with it.
0: Yeah, it's not as though anybody would be interested, right? Exactly.
1: It's, it's only now the most important and consequential criminal case in the country.
0: <laughs> Trump is expected to appear in court on Tuesday, where most believe he'll be charged with falsifying business records in connection with a series of hush money payments to porn star Stormy Daniels. Trump associate Michael Cohen paid Daniels $130,000 in 2016. He later pleaded guilty to campaign finance violations, among other charges. Right now, we're dealing with a lot of expecteds and likelies. But on the likely eve of Trump's arraignment, what do we know? Uncush is a former attorney with the U.S. Justice Department. He says one thing we know is that once you charge a president with a crime, you can't put the genie back in the bottle.
1: This is a, a norm that, you know, local prosecutors, state prosecutors wouldn't be prosecuting ex-presidents that for whatever reason remained intact uh, until last week. And it may be good or it may be bad that that norm has sort of been broken. Um, that's a long-term question that we really cannot answer at the moment. It is clearly setting a precedent. The question is like whether or not (laughs) other people choose to follow it.
0: Today on the show, this week, for the first time, a former president will be arraigned. What do we know? What do we not know? And how might this change American political norms forever? I'm Mary C. Curtis, filling in for Mary Harris. Stick around. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So Trump is expected to be arraigned on Tuesday. What are some of the big outstanding questions that that arraignment may answer?
1: So the biggest question is like, what exactly are the charges in this indictment, which should become uh, unsealed at the arraignment and then available to the public after the arraignment? So everyone is going to be you know, waiting to see what that document contains, whether it contains a set of, you know, detailed factual allegations or not, that's unclear. One question I think, you know, people might be contemplating is, oh, is Trump going to be, you know, detained pending trial? No, he will not be. There's obviously been a lot of understandable um, questions around what this process is going to be like for Trump himself. Is there going to be a mugshot, fingerprints? How, frankly, humiliating is it going to be for him? Because getting booked into a the court system is a fundamentally humiliating experience, no matter who you are. The judge might be asked to impose some constraints on Trump's public comments about the case. That would be a very tricky and thorny thing to get into since he's an active presidential candidate and a constraint like that, which is sometimes imposed by judges in criminal cases, does implicate some First Amendment concerns. But that's essentially the range of things I'm interested in. I'm most interested in seeing the charging document, the indictment.
0: So we should say off the bat that this is a sealed indictment. Could you explain why it's sealed and is that normal procedure?
1: It's not uncommon. Um, it is sealed out of fairness to the defendant, right? Um, so that there isn't a document that is just out there, you know, making allegations in a setting in which the defendant isn't entitled in an orderly way to see and respond to them. Right? So, um, he may get uh, access to the indictment before Tuesday. His lawyers, it wouldn't surprise me if the DA's office has tried to secure an order that would allow um, uh, them to give it to at least to his lawyers in the interim. But um, the notion that there would be this period where uh, charges uh, have been returned but are under seal is not that unusual um, in the abstract. Of course, I wish the DA's office, between us and anyone who's listening, I wish the DA's <laughs> office had tried to figure out some way to get things public as quickly as possible after the indictment was was returned and i understand they tried to get trump potentially to come up to new york uh, on friday itself which would have been one way to do it and he declined Um, but for whatever reason i think it's suboptimal that we have these few days where people are kind of scratching their head but on tuesday we should get some clarity
0: definitely well despite the fact that there was all this speculation beforehand the indictment itself seems to have caught Team Trump off guard. The, the Washington Post even reported that before this news dropped, some of his lawyers had been planning to take a few days off. So how has Team Trump reacted now that it is out, the indictment's out?
1: I mean, they've reacted in the way that um, I would expect. I mean, they had been for weeks on television. He's ready to fight.
0: You know, he's the toughest guy I
1: know. Yeah, yeah. And he's, um, he was shocked. Today, the rule of law in the United States of America died. I'm not surprised that, you know, in the wake of the news that the indictment was returned, his lawyers have been out making, you know, a full court press. I mean, this is as much for him and his lawyers a public messaging issue as it is sort of a legal proceeding. And that's one of the things, of course, that makes it highly unusual, if not literally unique. Um, But they've been out saying, you know, they're going to defend this. They think the case has problems. They're prepared to... um, fight it, he's not going to take a, a, a guilty plea, which should come as no surprise, but they've clarified that as well. Um, and so we're going to see a competent, very well resourced and very well lawyered defense.
0: A lot of places, uh, including networks like NBC and CNN have reported there are more than 30 counts in this case. If there really are that many, what does that number signify to you?
1: Yeah, it's a very good question. It, I, I wouldn't read too much into the number just yet. Um, and, and here's why, right? Obviously, people are hearing that number, 30 plus, and thinking, okay, they must have indicted him on a whole bunch of different uh, areas of conduct, a whole bunch of different types of crimes, maybe different facts underlying uh, different different charges. On the other end of the spectrum, it is very conceivable that you could put together a indictment based on falsifying business records in connection with the Stormy Daniels payment that would actually generate many, many different separate criminal counts. The reason is, if you're falsifying uh, or allegedly falsifying uh, records of the payment and you're doing it multiple times, each of those could conceivably charge as a different offense. And of course, Cohen was reimbursed over a series of time. And so each time he's getting reimbursed, each time the Trump organization is potentially memorializing that payment in its internal records in some capacity, you know, it is conceivable that a prosecutor could say, okay, that's a false business record. Okay, you did it again two weeks later, three weeks later, whatever, another charge, another charge, another charge. I don't know if that's the case, but it's within the realm of possibility.
0: Now we've seen most prominent Republicans pretty much falling into line very quickly behind Trump, even a lot of folks who they think might be running against him. And the party line is clearly that he's the target of a witch hunt. The unprecedented indictment of a former president of the United States for a campaign finance issue is an outrage. Uh, And I think it's it's clear to the overwhelming majority of the American people that this is nothing short of a of a political prosecution. What do you make of that argument? Is this something that we're going to hear from Trump's attorneys in court and could it work?
1: So we are almost certain to hear about this from Trump's lawyers in court. Um, They probably won't call it a witch hunt. They might, they might, they shouldn't, (laughs) but at least not in court. What they would presumably try to do is frame this as sort of a selective prosecution or a malicious prosecution. Criminal investigations and prosecutions often travel very strange paths that are affected by the defendant's luck, both good and bad, the circumstances. Everything about this case is like unique. The underlying facts, the way the investigation began, the way the investigation progressed, the way in which it has now ended and so you can look at those facts and say, like, well, this really wouldn't have happened to anyone else. But that's not the end of the, the story or the end of the analysis, because, yeah, it may not have happened to anyone else. But how many other people have done this? Um, so just to say that this is like unique and one of a kind, it, it is true. I think we should be honest about that. But it doesn't really end the analysis. Now, as a legal matter, right, as I said, you know, Trump's lawyers are likely to argue that this is some sort of selective prosecution or a malicious prosecution. The mere fact that someone has been charged uh, with a crime that is unique does not mean it's a selective prosecution. Generally speaking, the defendant has to show both that the defendant has been singled out for some improper purpose, whether it's political affiliation or race or something like that, and also that similarly situated people have not been charged for the same conduct. And so far, there's been no indication that anyone else did anything comparable that the DA's office has or has not looked at or resolved in a similar or different way.
0: Now, House Republicans have already said, without seeing all the facts as well, that they're opening an investigation into the DA's office.
1: We're waiting. But already, Jim Jordan says to the Manhattan District Attorney, I want to talk to you behind closed doors for an interview.
0: And on Friday, the attorney for Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg sent a letter to three of them saying, quote, what neither Mr. Trump nor Congress may do, is interfere with the ordinary course of proceedings in New York state, unquote. Do you think this backlash from Republicans, specifically this house investigation qualifies as interference?
1: You know, I'm not so sure about that. Um, I do think we live in a country with a complicated federalist arrangement, and this is a unique uh, defendant who is was former president And so I don't think it's beyond the realm of Congress's interest. I don't think they should be demanding that Alvin come testify. He's not going to do that, I I can't imagine, or demanding files or any of that stuff. Um, But, you know, maybe some limited things would be permissible. You know, they've asked, for instance, for communications between um, the DA's office and the Justice Department if those communications exist. I'm not sure it would be beyond the realm of a reasonable ask. I don't know. I doubt that there very much would come of it that is particularly scintillating or interesting, but I don't rule out just the possibility per se that the Congress doesn't have a role here.
0: Could these actions by the Republicans, could it affect the case in any way?
1: Sure, it could affect the case. I mean, this is a case now that is going to be both tried in a court, assuming that it proceeds all the way to a trial, um, and also in the public domain. And so One of the strange things about Trump as a defendant, one of the things that's always been strange about Trump as a defendant, he's he's singular in this regard. If he and his allies in politics or in the media can convince people that he's being wrongly targeted, they only need to convince one person who ends up on the jury. Manhattan at the moment is very, very anti-Trump. That's not gonna change (laughs) in the time before uh, a trial if it occurs, but, You know, you don't need to win over everyone if you're Trump, right? What you need to do is you need to find one person who winds up on that jury who you've persuaded.
0: After the break, what will Trump's arraignment look like? And once he's arraigned, what happens next? This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Trump is expected to be arraigned Tuesday. Let's start with some legal 101. What will this arraignment look like?
1: What is gonna happen on Tuesday, it appears, is you know, he'll go through a normal booking process, subject to any modifications that the DA's office, you know, maybe works out with his lawyers to make it slightly less humiliating than it usually is, given the mugshot and the fingerprinting and all that. But but I really don't know how much flexibility they have on that score. Um, but given, obviously, the Secret Service's involvement, like that's going to be just a thorny issue mechanically that I'm sure they're, they're, they're struggling to work through in a, in a sensible way. But then the arraignment itself, you know, uh, that's where the kind of the material legal developments occur. Right. The indictment will be unsealed. Um, there will be some very preliminary. I think Trump will probably have to enter a plea, presumably uh, not guilty. Um, and then the judge will probably set a initial schedule. Uh, at least for maybe some early motions or some disclosures. A whole bunch of things are going to have to happen now, right? Trump is presumably going to file some motions, right? Uh, Maybe to try to get the case dismissed or limited or transferred or something like that. The government has to produce um, discovery. People are going to have to be talking about a trial date in this case, assuming that it proceeds to trial. And that itself is going to be a huge, unique issue because We're talking about a trial conceivably that could happen in the middle of a heated presidential campaign, at least during primary season, if not during a general election, if Trump gets the GOP nomination. So uh, I say that these are all kind of minor administrative issues, but some of them, just given who we're talking about, like how you set a trial date, are going to be extremely tricky.
0: Now, we know that this arraignment is the first step in what is likely a long, long road. A lot of people are wondering now, what kind of timeline are we looking at here? And when could an actual trial
1: start? First of all, what we're seeing right now, and I expect even the DA's office may say, this is, if, we're, if our supposition is right, it's a narrow case, doesn't involve a lot of documents or witnesses, let's get this case tried in like six months, right? In the ordinary course, like the general expectation is that a criminal case from indictment to trial will take about a year, right? At least that timeline can be accelerated or pushed back depending on the complexity of the case. The Trump Organization trial, the criminal uh, tax sort of fraud case, that took 16 months from indictment to, to trial. And that was like, in terms of scale and scope, you know, not really that different in sort of factual complexity. So 16 months, well, if we do the math from where we are right now, like a year to a year and a half out, yeah, you know, we're talking about GOP primary season, we're talking about if Trump is the GOP nominee. We're talking about a summer of uh, uh, in which a presidential campaign is ongoing, right, potentially surrounding the GOP convention if Trump is the nominee. Is a judge going to schedule a trial during that period? I mean, there were similar issues in 2016. And for the most part, the sort of proceedings that might have gone to, for, like, proceeded to completion, including, like, civil cases surrounding, like, Trump University at the time, were pushed off until after the election. And I think there's gonna be, a, a, I would expect Trump's lawyers may make a similar request here to say like, you cannot conduct this trial in the middle of a national election when voters may very well reelect this man.
0: Would being charged with or convicted of a crime disqualify Trump from running for president or holding the office?
1: So not the crimes that the DA's office has charged him with. Um, would huh. not prevent him from running, not prevent him from coming into office. In theory, again, we're talking about like truly crazy factual scenarios that are now within the realm of possibility, I suppose. In theory, he could be incarcerated if the trial proceeds and all the appeals or whatever were exhausted. Yeah, he could be incarcerated by the time like there's a general election in which, if he's the nominee, he actually wins. I mean, that just seems so far fetched to have to contemplate, but it is a scenario. And so under that scenario, you would expect that uh, a duly elected president would not be required to stay in a New York state prison. So that's why I say legally, no, he can still he can still get back into office. Um, now, at the federal level, there is some question about whether if, char- if Trump were charged for assisting or inciting an insurrection, whether that might Disqualify him from holding federal office, um, and there are very serious legal questions about whether that's correct or not. Um, but that uh, possibility doesn't exist at, at, the, at the Manhattan DA level.
0: We're talking about a different crime.
1: <laughs> correct. We'd have to be talking about yeah. not just a federal crime, but it has to be. It would have to be a crime um, tied to Trump's participation in an insurrection. Uh, for that provision that I'm referring to to really even come into play.
0: Let's look beyond 2024. And you talked a a bit about this earlier when we talked about the kind of precedent this indictment may set for future presidents. Could you dig into that a little bit more, uh, what you think this could mean? The
1: concern that I think I I have at the moment is that a lot of other district attorneys are going to look at this and say, why can't I do that? Right. Why can't I do that after Joe Biden leaves office or some other Democrat leaves office in the future? Um, You know, we had this sort of norm, again, that was sort of uh, existed for whatever reason that local prosecutors didn't do this. And for better or worse, that norm has now been broken. To me, it is just undeniable that you're going to have people, including potential conservative prosecutors, um, who are going to pick this up and say, okay, well, this might now be in my toolkit too. I don't know if it's my expectation, but my hope is that we can tamp that down if the national parties can exert some discipline and impose some responsibility on their supporters and not make this a huge national, you know, endless political circus that results in all sorts of political back and forth. Unfortunately, given um, how the Republican Party already lined up in Trump's defense, as you noted, I'm not sure we're headed in that direction.
0: What do you think listeners should pay particular attention to once the charges are out?
1: You know, I think like people should look to trusted sources to like learn what the charges are about, learn what sort of legal issues that they raise, what sort of factual wrinkles might might be present in in the cases we understand it. And right now, you know, we're all grappling with like all of these sort of weighty seeming constitutional questions and concerns or whatever. I've been writing about this the last few days. These questions are questions that everybody gets to answer for themselves. You do not have to listen to me. You don't have to listen to anyone on TV. Like You can engage with this que- this case on its own terms and its political impact on its own terms, because these are fundamental questions of like democratic self-governance and how a country, which is run under a federalist system proceeds and whether certain things are or are not politically palatable or proper or out of bounds and the like. We're in a totally new territory here. And nobody, including me, has a monopoly on what the right answer to any of these questions is.
0: Thank you, Ankush Kodari, for coming on What Next? We'll see what happens.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Ankush Kodari is an attorney and a former federal prosecutor in the U.S. Justice Department. That's the show. If you're a fan of What Next? The best way to support our work is to join Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. What Next? is produced by Elena Schwartz, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We're getting help from Laura Spencer. We're led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richman is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary C. Curtis, columnist for Roll Call and host of its Equal Time podcast. Find me on Twitter. I'm at mcurtisnc3. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.